Two Moms Media and your daily local in Warren, Pennsylvania, this is Smoke, the disappearance of Damien Sharp. I received a phone call around 12.10 this afternoon from the victim of Pat's theft. He advised me that Pat was at his house on uh, May 25th and entered a room in his home, opening a locked box and removing an unknown amount of money. I asked him how much was taken, and he told me that Pat's parents had returned $400 to him, and he told me that Pat took around $1,300, but that's all they took off of him. The victim had no idea how much had been taken from the box, but he told me they were all in $100 bills. I asked him if it might have happened more than once, and he told me that it could have happened two days before, on May 23rd, because Pat was at his house that day too. Either way, he told me that Pat's parents let him know that another kid was with Pat when he took the money. The state police apparently didn't want to talk to this other kid. The victim didn't know who the other kid was. He told me to call Pat's parents and he gave me their address and phone number. And he told me to tell them that uh, he told me all this and he thought they would talk to me. You guys catch that little bit about them hundies? God, how I wish that this person had thought to describe the crispiness of those hundies. There's an outstanding example of the privilege of time in this investigation. It might have been Herzog's privilege to know that Jim Sarver claims to have canceled his sale with Damien because the money Damien brought to him was way too crispy and in the form of hundies, but it doesn't look like he did get that detail from anyone at that time, Sarver included. I'm really glad that Herzog noted the denomination of the bills, though. That's fabulous for me. Hundies confirmed. In a locked box. Probably pretty pristine looking, too, because folks with houses and rooms and lockable boxes inside of them don't generally just shove the cash in there in wads. They tend to stack it neatly. Sometimes in banded but orderly clumps. Life goals. Anyhow, the troublesome part of writing this story, with the ridiculous amount of new official documentation, is that I had many of the same questions as John Herzog, and did many of the same investigative tasks, but our investigations seem to have run in different directions, or rather, John's runs in a pretty linear and orderly fashion. Whereas mine is more like 16 squirrels, having not discussed the plan at all, attempting to outrun a predator as a herd. Pandemonium. At all times. This investigation brought to you by adult ADD is what I'm telling you. But luckily, I've been running with the squirrels since I was a child, so I know exactly how to keep up by this point. It's just that conveying that Escher schematic to you of a story in a coherent way is my biggest challenge. But we shall press on. So look, Herzog started off by talking to Stephen and Dave. Then he talked to Albie, that guy who called Damien's apartment while Dana and Stacy were in there after having learned of Damien's disappearance on Saturday, June 1st, one week after it happened. Herzog also talked to someone named Mike Baxter, who said he knew Damien through drugs but did not consider Damien a friend. And Herzog also tried to hook up with Baxter's ex-girlfriend, Jess, who allegedly told Stephen that Damien was after cocaine at Sarver's the night he went missing, not the weed that Pat had paid Damien to procure. Herzog then talked to Warren County DA, Rick Hernan, and the cops a bunch. 
And then about two weeks into his investigation, that's more than four months since Damien went missing, Herzog talked to Damien's friend Dave for the first time. And then on Tuesday, October 14th, Pat's victim called Herzog to give him some sweet, sweet info. I love it so much when that happens. I savor it. I nurture it. I thank people profusely. And then I go do what I can to develop that information through additional sources and corroboration. And that's what John did too. That very day, actually, though the documentation of his next steps begins in the following entry, which are dated Thursday, October 17th. Called his parents that day, and I spoke with his mother. When I told her who I was and why I was calling, she said something like, I knew this was going to happen, and something about it not ending. I asked if I could come by and talk to Pat. She told me she would have to call back later when his dad got home. I did that uh, later that day, and... Pat's dad told me he didn't know anything, and he really didn't have anything to tell me. Uh, he suggested I speak with his attorney, and I told him I'd already spoken with the victim, whose name I gave him, and I told him that the victim himself suggested I, I speak with him, and uh, I told him that they uh, should call that person, and uh, that I'd call them back the next day. I called around 7 p.m. on Wednesday, October 16th, and Pat's dad told me talked it over with his wife, and... Uh, they uh, had nothing to say to me. That hiccup in Herzog's investigation of the Pat situation would come to a head later on in John's notes. This particular entry is on page 34 to give you some context. It's written on October 17, 2002. On page 85 of this total report, recorded on Wednesday, March 19, 2003, went to Pat's house for an interview I'd prearranged with his dad after his dad called and told me, his son had some information. Upon arrival, we attempted to talk with Pat, and he told us he had some information about where Damien was going to buy his drugs. But uh, then Patrick backed off. I asked Pat if he meant that Damien went to Sarver's house that day, and Pat looked at me and he said, Who's Sarver? Though initially apparently interested in sharing this information, Pat ultimately said he wasn't going to talk to us anymore. But that's well after Herzog's initial encounter with Pat, or rather his non-encounter with Pat, though not for lack of trying, between October 15th to the 17th. Just better for you to know about it here than where it appears, as well as the fact that the follow-up on Pat was after five months of other investigation, and it came because Pat's dad initiated it. There doesn't appear to be any plan to follow up with Pat after his dad initially mentioned involving his attorney and then ultimately declined to make Pat sit down with Herzog to discuss the case. And Pat was a juvenile and therefore well protected behind the ultimate decisions of his parents. So John got blocked. That's a huge bummer, but it is one that comes with the gig. Anyhow, on October 17th, after striking out with Pat, Herzog reached out to Bryce Blackman's dad, Jim. Jim Blackman had been the county's assistant DA many years before any of this went down, and he was still an attorney in 2003 when he told John Herzog that he would talk with his son and call him in the morning, and then he'd set something up. Later on that Thursday, October 17th, Herzog dealt with Channel 4 News in Buffalo. Dana and the rest of the family had been trying like hell to get some media coverage of Damien's case that, in their opinion, better told the relevant parts of his story. But striking out in Warren without any news to add to the repeated and worthy pleas for help, they started branching out, and Herzog was their messenger in that. 
He spoke with Don McIntyre, he wrote, who told him that. They probably wouldn't do any tape on this unless the interview came from somewhere in New York State. He said the family had mentioned Janine's Celeron New York address as a possible New York connection. I, uh, I told him I felt that the news release or press conference should come from either the Warren City Police or the Warren County District Attorney's Office. Uh, he said to keep him posted. So whoever Don McIntyre was, reporter, editor, producer, I don't know what, he was trying to give Herzog an in here by even bringing up the fact that Janine lived in Celeron. I don't like that Herzog turned it down, apparently, for the possibility that the information might have to come from New York State officials rather than Warren County ones. I'm not saying that this is specifically an ego thing on Herzog's part, but there is sometimes, sometimes, a little bit of a pissing contest involved in law enforcement egos over information. It's not all the time. I'm just saying if the information was going to come from somewhere, Herzog seems to have wanted it to come from his peeps. Just like reporters can be jealous over beats and sources and stories and turf and information, cops can be as well. But this would have been an opportunity for more people to be aware of Damien's case. In 2003, though, before the internet, I kind of have to agree with McIntyre in that I don't really see how helpful that would have been, aside from, you know, helping Damien's family to feel heard, maybe on some off chance reaching someone in Buffalo with ties to Warren or to Damien who might have been able to help. But that, to me, in 2003, with no Facebook and few cell phones, none of which were even smart yet, you guys. I just don't know. It's not not worth doing. I'd have stuck my foot in that door. McIntyre cracked for me, but I'm a journalist and Herzog's a cop. I get it. Begrudgingly, I do get it. Finally, that day, Herzog closed his notes by documenting that I met with uh, Patrolman Scott Taylor of the Warren Police Department, and I asked if he'd mind uh, meeting with the DA to go over my last couple of interviews. He said he had no problems with that, so I called uh, DA Hernan to see if he'd meet with us sometime in the next couple days, and he said he would. I called uh, Warren City Police Lieutenant Wachter, too, to let him know that uh, we were uh, setting this up, and he said he had no problem with that. The next day, Friday, October 18th, Herzog headed out to see Bryce at a 3.30 p.m. meeting set up by Bryce's dad, Jim, at Jim's office on Market Street in Warren. Let's listen in. The meeting was set for uh, 3.30, but Bryce didn't show up until 3.45. Uh, Bryce, who was 17, told me, he was good friends with Damien's brother, Stephen Sharp, and that uh, he had met Damien through Stephen. Uh, he'd known Stephen about, oh, he thought, four or five years. And uh, he said that uh, Stephen had stayed at his house several times over those years. Bryce had only met Damien about two years ago, though, he told me. Uh, he described Damien as laid back and said he just got out of the military. And he said he liked him because he was easy to get along with and uh, easy to talk to. And he said he was artistic. He said he liked to make a lot of things with his hands. Bryce told me he never saw Damien get angry or get into a fight. And if I really wanted to know a lot about him, I should talk to uh, Damien's best friend, David. This was actually something that Stacy Sharp talked about in her interview with Herzog the following spring. Though her relationships with Damien and Stephen as kids had been challenging, 
There was never a time when she felt unsafe around Damien or when Damien exploded or acted violently, she said. That's pretty consistent with what most people tell me of Damien, even his peers. He was the one to start a fight only if it was to bait a bully into it or to stand up for someone else. I just wanted to highlight the consistency here in Damien's character across multiple sources, across a lot of time. Damien is the one really kind of constant thing in this whole story. I asked Bryce if he owned a car and he said yes. He uh, owned a Dodge Neon green four-door. I asked him what happened on Friday night and he said he was uh, driving Pat and Damien's friend Mike around and they went to Damien's and Mike wanted to get drunk and Pat wanted to check out his deal with Damien. Uh, Damien was going to get him a pound of marijuana. Bryce said they got to Damien's place around 9 p.m. on Friday night and that uh, Damien, himself, Pat and Mike, and some other younger people were there. Uh, Bryce only stayed there for a short time. He said uh, he's left around 9.30 or 9.45 p.m. because his curfew was 10 p.m. and he had to be home. That Saturday, Bryce said he slept until noon and then he went over to, to uh, Mike's house and Mike lived on Water Street. And Pat came down there, and around 4 o'clock, they called Damien and asked him if uh, he had the pound of weed or if he uh, found out where he could get it. Damien called us back at Mike's, and uh, we went over to his place. It wasn't long after we called him that he called us back. Uh, Pat flashed a roll of money, and it looked like all hundreds and fifties. After we got to Damien's, he uh, asked me if I could drive him to get the weed. So up to this point, really, the story I've gone by is what I've pieced together from multiple sources. And that's that Damien went on a high ride with Danica Saturday morning and was dropped off at home around noon or so. He visited the skate park sometime between noon and 1 p.m., according to Stephen. In 2002, Stephen told Herzog he didn't know whether Damien had a ride from his apartment to the park and thought he probably walked. Danica did not say she dropped Damien off at the skate park, but Stephen did tell me when we talked in the beginning of this project that Bryce may have driven him there. Either way, Damien left the park no later than 1.30 or shortly thereafter that afternoon, Stephen told me, and headed out to pick out a couple things. When we spoke, Stephen told me the plan was for Damien to pick up some weed. He said he gave Damien maybe 30 bucks to kick in on a bag and also pick up some liquor, which Stephen was still too young to buy. He told me that the plan was for Damien to do all that running, including the liquor store, before the party that night, which they'd already moved from the woods to the apartment. Which is where Stephen planned to head after he left work that evening. Stephen found out later, he said, after having seen Damien that day, that his brother planned to go get money from Pat and visit Sarver's place, but he thought Damien went to Mike's to meet everyone there. That's actually more consistent with what Pat told me, actually, when I spoke with him in the beginning of the project as well. I reached out to Pat on October 2nd, 2021, with the same old spiel. Podcaster Damien Sharp, please talk to me. Within the hour, by 10 a.m., Pat had responded. Hey, yes, I saw Damien the day he went missing. It was Memorial Day weekend, and I gave him $900 for a pound of weed. He had a lot of money on him, probably three dollars to $5,000. Damien, myself, Mike Reams, and Bryce Blackman met up at Mike's house on Water Street. There might have been other people our age there, but I'm not sure. That's when I gave him the money. He gave me his apartment key as assurance that he was coming back. Now, we're going to dip back into Bryce for a second, but I just want to highlight this three to $5,000 amount sounds way higher than what anyone else is claiming. Just worth noting. 
It's just another one of those maddening, maddening little variables that pops up out of nowhere and you got to deal with. Welcome to my nightmare. Anyhow, back to Herzog and Bryce for just a second. I asked Bryce if he uh, knew where they were going or who they were going to go see, and he said he didn't. Uh, Bryce told me that he was already on his way downstairs when the $900 was mentioned and headed to get the car when Pat gave Damien the money, so he didn't see that happen. Uh, Mike and Pat stayed at Damien's, and uh, Bryce said he took Damien to the intersection of Dahl and Prospect Streets. Uh, he told uh, Bryce to let him out, and he didn't say where he was going or who he was going to go meet. And uh, as he was getting out, though, he gave me his house key, and he told me to go back to the apartment and wait, and he would meet us back there around 7 or 8 p.m. I asked Bryce if Damien was acting nervous or acting strange, and uh, Bryce said he was fine. Uh, nothing appeared to be wrong. I asked him what Damien was wearing, and Bryce told me he had on a long black pants, a long sleeve black t-shirt, a black book bag or a backpack with straps, uh, black and white Vans sneakers, and his uh, hair was short, black and spiked. Bryce said that uh, Damien didn't have his skateboard with him, and uh, he told me that it was either raining when he left him off or it had started too later or it uh, rained earlier in the day and it was a little chilly that night, Bryce said. Bryce told me that uh, after Damien got out of his car, he uh, drove to Damien's apartment on Cedar Street and uh, they waited until after 8 p.m. for him and uh, Bryce, Bryce thought maybe uh, he'd rip Pat off. Uh, a couple people came around 9 p.m. and after that, maybe around 9.30, Bryce said he got in his car and drove back up to Prospect Street to look for Damien. And uh, he said he didn't see him along the way, so he went back to Damien's place and told Pat and Mike he hadn't seen him. Bryce said he gave Mike Damien's house key and uh, left and drove home. And he said he went looking for him on Sunday uh, up in Cherry Grove. So I've not talked to Bryce today. I'm pretty sure that I'm blocked on at least one of his Facebook profiles, and I had heard that he had unfriended Stephen after Stephen was initially supportive and in working with me on this podcast. I'm not sure if that's still the case or not. Either way, Pat and Bryce's versions and memories of this, I don't want to say versions, Pat and Bryce's memories of this day and this event are different, and I just want to highlight how. So building off of what Pat told me back in October of 2021, he said that they all came over to Mike's. Damien took his money. He was going to get him a pound of weed. So after Pat gave Damien that money at Mike's place, he said, on Water Street, and Damien gave him his apartment key as collateral, promise I'll be back with your drugs, take my key as proof. Pat told me that, quote, Damien lived by the YMCA. Bryce could drive at the time, so he gave Damien a ride to the corner of Prospect and Dahl Street and dropped him off. We all walked to his apartment. Damien was on crutches. Then Bryce came over to Damien's apartment. We waited and waited. He never came. I figured I got ripped off. We were young, time to go. My sister came and got me. I don't even remember if she knew at the time what was going on. Maybe she drove Mike home, too. Everyone did leave, though. We locked his apartment. A few days later, the police called my parents, took me in. I told them everything I knew, which is all the same I just shared with you. So did all my friends. I honestly cannot believe that no one has any knowledge of what happened. Of course, there are rumors, and of course, I have my suspicions, but I've told the police all of this. Even just back in 2014, 2015, a trooper contacted me, and I went in and said it all again. 
I was young. I wish I could help more, but honestly, that's all I know for a fact. So Herzog did ask Bryce about Damien and Pat's friendship, how long it had existed, the foundation on which it existed, and basically just how the two knew each other and came to be involved in a drug deal together and stuff. Check it out. I asked Bryce what he thought when Damien didn't show up with uh, either the drugs or the money, and Bryce said he thought Damien skipped town or he might be dead. I asked him what time he dropped Damien off that night, and he said it was around 5.30 or 6 p.m., but he wasn't sure. I asked him if Pat ever said how much he had taken from his relative, and Bryce said it was like $1,300 the first time and $1,500 the second. Uh, Pat's sister told Bryce that uh, Pat took a total of around three grand. Pat told Bryce that he'd uh, been ripped off a few days before that weekend, uh, having given someone named Robbie $800 to $900, and that Robbie gave it to a kid named Junior, and that Junior ripped him off. Pat told Bryce that a kid named Kyle was with him when he took that money. His sister told Bryce that Pat just, uh, he wouldn't rat out Kyle. Bryce told me that uh, Pat and Damien had just met uh, a couple weeks before this all went down uh, at the skate park. Damien's friend Mike introduced him uh, to Pat, and uh, it was around that same time that Pat got ripped off for the first time. I asked Bryce if he knew this girl Jessica, and he said he did, and uh, he thought she was a senior, and he said she was okay, she was a good kid. I asked him if uh, he could think of anyone I could talk to who might be able to help us find Damien, uh, he said I should talk with David because that was Damien's best friend. Bryce said he has to be home at 10 every night with the car. I asked him about Mike, and uh, he said he doesn't pal around with Mike anymore because Mike was turning into a cokehead, and uh, that wasn't his thing. I asked him if he did any drugs at Damien's on Friday night. He said he thought he might have done a doobie. Bryce said he would help me figure out where this Kyle lived, and uh, how to get a hold of him, and I left after that. Uh, I went over to Dave's, but Dave wasn't there. So guys, that's pretty much all we know about Bryce and Pat. I spoke with Pat a couple times, and he had nothing to really add, but I'm hoping he's listening. And if so, Pat, if anything I'm writing about or talking about jogs your memory, I'd love it if you could hit me up. My door remains open. Anything else you remember about that weekend at all could be a big help. You never know. We're counting on someone. I also want to let you guys know at this point, right before the break, that we've got a few more things to catch up on, but then we're headed into a brand new thread. We're going to finish up this episode with Steven and Dave, but then that new thread that got us up to Jake's Rocks last year, that's coming up in upcoming episodes. I'm not sure if we're going to be able to fit it all in to 10 episodes, but we're just going to have to cross that bridge when we come to it. This season is it, so we'll put out as many as we need to to tell you everything we know. First, though, I need to introduce you to the show's rad new sponsor real quick, and then we'll jump back into the story to find out about Herzog's additional contacts with both Steven and Dave after the break. Meet me there, kids. Hey guys, are you like me and looking to maybe pick up a cheap used car with some of that tax return? Do you have one to sell? Is it cheap? Well, how many miles? You should call me. But first, you should call Greg Miller of Miller's Mobile Notary in Warren. 
Greg just got the Commonwealth's holy blessing to witness your most pressing legal documents. And because he's rad, Greg's down for doing that in the evenings and on weekends because Greg is like you. He has a big boy job and he can't always make it to one of the few local brick and mortar notaries when they're open. So Greg knows the struggle and now he's here to help you with it. Not all heroes wear capes. But for an extra 20, Greg would probably do that too, if that's what you're looking for, weirdo. Check out Miller's Mobile Notary and Warren PA on Facebook for a complete fee schedule and to get more information. And when you're ready to sell your husband's four-wheeler to his work enemy on a Saturday afternoon so you can force him to stay inside and fix the things, all those things that need fixed, just give Greg a call at 814-706-1173 or 814-706-3230. That's Miller's Mobile Notary. Your time is valuable. Let Greg come to you. So at this point, guys, we've got to cover a ton of pages in a short time, and I want to break them down for you before we start so you have a little rope to hang on to as we ram through them. It's a ton of information, but lucky for you, I'm basically the preschool teacher taking you all on a walk. So here's your rope. Hang on while we go on a journey, okay? Between October 11th, 2002 and March 11th of 2003, Herzog produced a dozen or so individual entries. Eight of those occurred throughout the month of October 2002, four in November 2002, one in late February 2003, and three in March of 2003. Throughout that time, Herzog was checking in with Stephen and Dave, working with the police, and fielding requests from family for media coverage or information regarding the same. He also went to the Prospect Mansions in there, speaking with the property owner and several of Jim's neighbors, including Robert Ensworth, whose 1993 Cadillac DeVille was ultimately investigated by police following a search of the property in 2003. We start to see a lot less consistency in Herzog's notes here, and for a lot of reasons I understand why. I went through the document color coding and blocking off sections and adding boxed indexes at the top of each new entry indicating what it dealt with. Did Herzog here speak with Stephen, Dave, Bryce, Pat, law enforcement, including the district attorney, Rick Hernan? Did he speak with the media? Did he speak with other family members? Some clues as to the reasons for Herzog's eventual dissolution of his contract with the family are here, and we'll try to investigate them, but all we have is the family's side and this documentation, which really doesn't answer the ultimate question. Why, after hiring him, did the family stop hearing from John Herzog altogether, and how did he come to be working for the City of Warren Police on this case instead? But let's start in October 2002 and work our way forward. So on that Tuesday, October 22nd, Herzog met up with Dave for the second time. Honestly, I'm not even super into covering this particular encounter because it mainly just consists of Herzog asking who did what drugs at Damien's Friday night party and who was there. One interesting thing about that conversation is that Herzog asked Dave who knew about Damien's deal with Pat to get that pound of weed. And Dave told Herzog that he thought Mike, Bryce, that Brandon kid, the one who Dave said fell asleep in Damien's bed at the Friday night party, and his brother Stephen knew about it. The kid that Bryce told Herzog ultimately ripped Pat off on that first deal. Remember how Bryce said that Pat gave some money to a kid named Robbie and Robbie gave it to Junior, who never produced that weed? Dave told Herzog Junior's name sounded familiar, but he couldn't think of a last name, and he thought that Junior might be a friend of Stevens. 
Then Herzog turns the conversation to the topic of Jim Sarver again. Let's listen in. I started asking about Sarver, and in his first interview, David became uh, evasive, vague, uh, with his answers. And it was at that time I told David he was not telling me the entire truth, and I asked him if he was a friend of Sarver, and he said no. Uh, if he knew that Sarver killed his friend Damien, he would have gone to the police right away. Uh, David said he knew Sarver was the last person to see Damien, but uh, no one can say for sure if he killed Damien. Herzog asked Dave about Jessica and about who else bought drugs from Jim, and he got details of how drop-offs normally went with Dave when he took Damien to Prospect to see Jim in the past. It was a 15 to 20 minute ordeal, Dave explained. Drop him at Dahl and Prospect, he'd walk to Jim's. The ride was instructed to be back in 15 to 20 minutes, then that would be that. Dave told Herzog it happened twice with him, and if Damien wasn't waiting for him at Dahl, Dave said, he'd be walking down Prospect toward Dahl when Dave got there. I really don't think Damien ever bought any coke from Sarver, David told me. Uh, he said he thought Damien might have sold Sarver coke. Uh, I asked David where Sarver got his marijuana, and David said that he didn't know, but uh, something about maybe one of Sarver's family members, uh, uh, something about out in... Garland or Pittsfield. I then told David that uh, it was hard for me to believe that there was going to be a party on Saturday night and he didn't go. Uh, I said, your best friend's having a party and you don't go. Herzog did get some more solid directions to the Heart's Content campsite than I've ever been able to find. That campsite that had been the planned ground zero for Saturday's woods party until weather and crutches and ugh. Later on, Herzog actually went up there, and he described it in the next day's note, Wednesday, October 23rd. I'm hoping to get up there this spring and check it out after 20 years of change, but here's what Herzog described at that spot that October. I got out of my truck and walked around the turnaround and saw a path going back into the woods. I followed it about 200 yards, and I saw a blue tarp. Uh, another 100 yards, I came to a clearing, and there was a teepee open except for the uh, top quarter section, which was covered with a blue tarp. I found one blue tarp lying on the ground uh, outside the teepee and uh, a fire pit lined in stone. Uh, there were three benches made out of logs and they'd been sawed by what appeared to be a power saw. Uh, there was what appeared to be gothic symbols painted on the logs. Uh, I walked in circles around the campsite. I found some pushing behind a large fallen tree and several other plastic tarps. The campsite was clear, uh, there wasn't much litter around, and there were apparent four-wheeler tracks in the area. After finding nothing of interest, uh, I left and uh, went back to my vehicle and returned home. Herzog ended with Dave by having that conversation you heard a piece of at the end of the last episode, right before I swallowed a flamethrower and started running my mouth. Here's the entire end of that entry, just for a full context. I said again to David that uh, it appeared strange to me that after partying with Damien on Friday night and talking about having a party on Saturday night, that he didn't go. Uh, you can refer to pages 29 and 30 of this report, my first interview with David, and uh, he told me that he had bought drugs from Sarver. I again asked David if he was afraid of Sarver, and he said he was not, and... He had no reason to be. 
I told David when he left, he'd better get his facts together because when they found Damien, he was going to be in the middle of a homicide investigation. So I'm going to say something right now that's going to go over like a fart in church, but Dana annoyed the living shit out of the cops. All the cops, including Herzog. Actually, I'm sure that it had to do with Dana's approach, which is pretty direct. This is what I expect. This is what I have a problem with. This is what I want to see changed. This is how I expect that to look and or happen. I actually wish I were a little more like that, honestly, because it lets me know that Dana doesn't really give a shit if people like her or not. Dana's about Dana, and Dana was about Damien. And I'm also about Damien, so here's a little bit of what Dana and Herzog talked about on Thursday, October 24th. Dana Kibbe called me around 9.30 a.m., extremely upset about the news and the television coverage that the Joey Donato case was receiving. Dana said that she felt truly sorry for the family and she hoped the uh, investigation went well, but she was frustrated and depressed about not being able to find Damien. I told her that uh, she had to keep doing what she's doing and hope that everything worked out. I told Dana that Skip asked me if I had a copy of the police department's original report on Damien and I said I didn't. Uh, he asked me if I thought I could get one uh, and I told him I, I didn't think I could, and, and if I were him, I wouldn't even try. Uh, Dana was still asking about the phone records and why they hadn't been obtained. I told her that uh, I was going to go to Cherry Grove that afternoon and try to find the campsite. So here comes the strong opinion portion of our show. It's becoming a regular thing, I know. But the fact is that Skip had gotten some information from a psychic soon after Damien went missing that Damien was going to be found on Halloween alone in the woods and that he'd gone out there by himself to die. Now, this was just some random nonsense that some charlatan, maybe some well-informed one or a delusional one, but a charlatan nonetheless, in my opinion, gave Skip out of nowhere. But Skip grasped that information tight and he just was not looking to participate in a lot of the family efforts made early to distribute flyers and get the word out there because he fully believed this psychic was right. He also did a lot of stuff like solo kayak trips along the river and telling people that he was going to find Damien first and show how stupid all the cops were. I want to be seriously clear right now that I'm not telling you these things so that you can snicker at Skip. Quite the contrary, I'm trying to show you how vulnerable family members are in situations like this. Dana said it before when it came to Sarver. She couldn't remember how his name came to her as a person of interest, but once it did, she clung to that as the answer, the solution to this mystery, because she, her entire family, needed something. That's the most normal human thing in the world to do, you guys, and grief looks different for every individual person. I get how Dana's pushing or Skip's heckling of the police department probably wore on the department and started to drive divisions between the family and law enforcement, especially with the actual investigation sort of languishing in nowhere land for months and communication between the two groups sort of fading out. By the time Herzog is investigating the case next to Tony Comenti the following spring, Tony is about to be pulled as lead investigator by Chief Rick Porman and the case taken over by more senior officer Rick Brecht. Any issue I have with what was or was not done on this case up until Herzog's involvement, you guys, and afterward as well, may sound rough. And it is rough. I was rough on Tony. I was rough on Scott Taylor, and I certainly have not gone easy on John Herzog. 
But what I maybe failed to point out to you so far is that, with the exception of John Herzog, all those officers had a supervisor, they had a leader, and that was Rick Poorman. Tony was a new cop and new to Warren. If he had a missing person and no idea whether the guy allegedly driving that person around had a car or not, that should have been a question that Poorman was asking and seeking clarification on from Tony until Tony got that answer. If Tony was struggling with the case, or disinterested in the case, or whatever it may have been, it was Poorman's job to keep up with that and to fix it if it was a problem. That did not happen. It seems like there was a general lack of supervision, or that the supervision of the City of Warren Police Department in 2002, Rick Poorman, felt no urgency toward Damien's case. Not necessarily that the officers didn't. I think that might have been the culture. Anyhow, this just felt like the right place to say that. The next day, Friday, October 25th, was the day that all those weird refinery fume fever dream tips came in and the day that Janine encountered Jim Sarver at the Bilo supermarket in Warren. We covered that in the last episode. Through the last of October, Herzog worked on Sarver's neighbors and basically fielded a bunch of random tips from people claiming to have seen Damien in the week following his disappearance. None of those seemed to have panned out, though Herzog did run through them, contacting most of the people in question and just striking out on further info. Sometimes it be that way. On October 30th, though, at the end of the day, Herzog writes, I also had a message from Steve Sharp Jr. I tried to call him back, but he wasn't home. Uh, I'll keep trying as I, uh, I want to interview him again. Tensions between the family and Herzog seem to ratchet up here on November 5th. He describes being stood up by Stephen in front of the Warren Mall, where Stephen made a plan to meet him the day before and talk. Herzog said he waited from 11.50 to 12.20 p.m. until it became evident, he said, that Stephen wasn't going to show. Herzog talked to Janine later that day. I told her that her son had failed to keep his meeting with me on Monday. Uh, she said that she would uh, talk with her son and get the problem straightened out. It's also this day, Herzog writes, that I got together with District Attorney Hernan, and after some thought, he told me he was going to write a letter to the Warren City Police Department uh, requesting that they turn this investigation over to the Pennsylvania State Police. Friday, November 8th, Herzog called Stephen and set up a time for the two of them to meet. It was Monday, November 11th at noon, in front of the Warren Mall again, and Stephen said he'd be there. Come that Monday, though, wrote Herzog. I received a phone call from Stephen Sharp, who said he uh, wouldn't be able to meet with me today. I asked him why, and he said it was personal, and uh, he wouldn't talk about it. Uh, he told me before he hung up that uh, he would call me later in the week and set something else up. At around 3.15 p.m., I met with Janine and her husband at the uh, ball field in Weld Bank, and we talked about the case and what was going on, and Janine said she had a group of friends who were going to go to the Warren City Police Department and pick it. I told her about Stephen not showing up twice and that I had a real problem with that. I told her that uh, Stephen was uh, Damien's brother and he should be doing everything in his power to help find him. Meeting with me should not be a problem for him, I said. I was just trying to find Damien. I told Janine this, that uh, along with Stephen not reporting his brother missing, it was, it was strange. Uh, maybe he didn't want to call the police, I said, but uh, he'd been around the apartment for several days, stopping to get his mail. I mean... At least call your mother or Dana or someone in the family who might be concerned about him. I told Janine I also had problems with uh, 
Dana giving the location where Damien was last seen incorrectly. Uh, this is information the police would use later, I told her. I have less than zero idea what Herzog means about Dana putting the location of Damien's last known location incorrectly, but I'm assuming he means in the initial missing person report. I don't have any context for that comment. It's confusing. Anyhow, eight days later, on November 19th, Herzog met with the police to see if Hernan had written that letter. I attempted to contact Lieutenant Walker to see if uh, Mr. Hernan had in fact written the letter as he said he had done. Uh, I was unable to reach Lieutenant Walker, and uh, I got a call from Patrolman Chimeni asking if I had a phone number for Stephen Sharp Jr. I got a call from Patrolman Taylor who said his department did get a letter from Mr. Hernan and that his chief advised that until they exhausted all information that they would continue working this case. Taylor said they were setting up some polygraph dates and uh, the reason they were trying to contact Stephen was because he was going to be the one that was going to uh, be run on the box. I told Taylor that Steve uh, had failed to meet me uh, twice in the last couple of weeks. Uh, Taylor said Stephen was also not returning calls to his mother. Taylor called Herzog the next day. At 7.30 and we talked to almost 9. He said that they ran David on the polygraph today. I asked if they were going to try to use the luminol and he advised that uh, they would use it later. I told Taylor you could uh, use the results against Sarver and his girlfriend and you could use it in the polygraph test question. Uh, if you did get something, uh, it would uh, be a positive, and uh, if nothing else was found, then not really a negative. Uh, we also talked about uh, Pat and Jessica. I'm going to try to ignore the shade in that last one for just a minute so we can keep moving because Dean needs me to finish the script so he can get his Herzog on, and I need to finish the script so I can recaffeinate, but stick a pin in that shit. That requires more in a future episode. I'll get back to it as soon as I can. <sighs> On Thursday, February 25th, I mean, yes, fully three months later, Herzog gets a call from Janine that's basically a freak-out message along the lines of some hysterical bullshit I've left on people's machines before, and I honestly have all the respect for Janine in this situation, I'm not even gonna lie. Janine was going broke, she told Herzog. Her life was falling apart. She couldn't pay him any more money for this investigation, he noted. Herzog spoke to the police twice more between that note and where we're ending this week, kids, which is on March 11th, when Chief Rick Porman of the City of Warren Police Department called and asked if I would assist their department with this investigation. He said he would uh, contact Dana Kibbe and tell her that uh, I would be doing this if she'd be willing to pay for my time. Uh, Dana called and said she didn't think it was right for the police to ask this. I told her to think about it and get back to me so I'd be able to tell Chief Porman whether I was going to assist or not. So, you guys, we're caught up to the next set of missing pages. Immediately after Porman called Herzog to ask if he'd be their investigator instead on the family's dime, and Herzog told Dana she should think about her hesitation to doing that and let him know so he could tell Porman if he could continue to help or not. That's on page 73. We jump straight to page 77. I'm not going to tell you about page 77 right now. I'm going to reach out to the person mentioned on it, Barb Rollman, and see if she can fill me in on any interactions she had with John Herzog in October of 2002. I'll let you know next week what I find out, and if it's nothing, then we're going to move on and look at a new perspective on an old tip that got dogs sniffing the ground at Jake's Rocks last Memorial Day. It's like the mystery prize at the bottom of the Cracker Jacks, kids. You just never know what I'm going to come up with. 
we'll crack that trading card or horseshoe charm or tin soldier open next week. Smoke is a weekly true crime investigative podcast written and told by me, Stacey Gross of Two Moms Media. Your producers are me and Brian Hanker of Your Daily Local. Our theme song is Diddy Six, written and produced by my father, Bob Gross. Dean Wells provided the voice of John Herzog in this episode. Big thanks, Dean, as always. If you have information to share with police about Damien or his case, call Detective Tiffany Post at 814-723-2700. If you have stories, memories, or information about Damien or his case that you don't want to share with police, text me instead at 814-230-5855. If you like this show, leave us some stars, ratings, or a review on whatever platform you're using to listen. It makes a big difference for us, and it also helps more people learn about Damien and his case. Until next week, kids, eyes and ears open, and let's find Damien.